We're going to continue on, uh, left off at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 5, starting up in verse 6. We'll finish up that chapter today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us as we open up the scriptures and that you would minister to us through them. I pray for this group from Cupertino, that uh, you would bless them while they're here and help them to see the things that you want them to see and learn what you want them to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 22. Last week we introduced a, a guy by the name of Doeg. He, was, he is an Edomite. And, um, and since he's an Edomite, he could, he could care less about the priests of Israel. And so we're going to read about what he did to those priests and earlier in the service, we read through uh, Psalms chapter 52, uh, which was a, a psalm David wrote with Doeg in mind. Uh, we're not going to turn to that psalm. Rather, we're going to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And it says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. What is John saying here? We've heard that Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist, right? And the one reference in Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 through 22, as the horn and how he will be. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and I prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The Antichrist who is also referenced in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And the, the Antichrist is also referenced in Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 through 8, where John gives us this picture of what the Antichrist will be like. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it, it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So it's a common basic Christian doctrine that the Antichrist is coming before the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Antichrist, who's the embodiment of, of evil, the embodiment of, of opposition towards God. But you notice that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, there are Antichrists. It's plural there. Right? That even now many Antichrists have come. And John acknowledged that the Antichrist is coming, but even now there are Antichrists. Plural. Antichrist, people, ideologies, movements, opposition to God who seek to destroy God's people and what God's people stand for. So back in 1 John, John was fighting against false teachings, which, which is a key thing for Antichrist figures. But in addition to these false teachings, they seek to eliminate God's people. They seek to eliminate God's ideas. So now you may be asking, what does this have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 22? Well, we're going to be taking a look at Saul. And the mask is starting to come off of Saul. And the Antichrist within Saul is being revealed. So starting in verse 6. 
Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So Saul throws this pity party for himself. Right? And how upset he's at at his own tribe because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And because no one tells me anything. Everyone's against me. That guy, David, so bad. Right? And, and, you know, he, is he going to give you anything if he's the king? You know, is he going to make you a commander? Is he going to give you uh, jobs in, all, in political offices? Like, well, he's not going to do anything. And notice how he can't even call David by his name. He calls him the son of Jesse. Right? He, and we'll, we'll see later that he also does this with the priest Ahimelech. He called him the son of Ahitub. And it's as if Saul is trying to distance himself from David and, and how he, what, what's really happening here in Ahimelech because he feels they've conspired against him. And Saul in no way wants it to seem as though he has any like personal contact or personal friendship with them. So he's distancing himself from them. Verse 9, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now you remember 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 7? It said, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So that was the introduction of Doeg. And so we saw that Doeg was there. He was detained before the Lord. We don't really know why he was there. It's not said. But for whatever reason, he was there and he witnessed David talking to Ahimelech and told Saul about it. That, hey, he also gave that guy Goliath's sword. Verse 11, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and, I, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So do you see Saul? Do you see Saul, the Antichrist here? See Saul interrogated Ahimelech, sentenced him to death. Even though Ahimelech had this kind of just defense for what he did, he did not know that this was what was happening. But he's accused of this. And, and Saul saw these priests as allies to David and saw them as disloyal to him. So he sentenced them all to death. And so he orders his men to slaughter all these priests, but they refuse. They, 
They don't want this. They don't want that happening. So Saul isn't the Antichrist, but, but as John wrote, even now we have Antichrist among us. Israel's very own king and Antichrist slaughtering the priests of the Lord. Verse 18, Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. So we see what Saul ordered. And in the beginning of the study, verses 6 through 8, Saul is complaining to his guys about how they aren't telling him anything. And then he ordered this massacre. Now, something interesting here, because if you guys were here for that other study, when God commanded him to wipe out the Amalekites. I don't know if you guys recall this. But God told him to eliminate the Amalekites completely in chapter 15. And he doesn't. He keeps some of it for himself, doesn't he? But here... God doesn't instruct him to do this, but he's yet he's willing to wipe out the priests, the Lord's servants, their families, their livestock, everything that he ordered him to do to the Amalekites in chapter 15, which he didn't do, he's doing here without God's instruction, but he's just doing it on his own. And so his, his men refused, so he turns to Doeg. And at first, Doeg started out just informing Saul of what happened, but then he carried out this horrendous act. Now, doesn't this ring a, a kind of a bell or, or make you kind of think something? Back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 31 and 33. Let me read that for you. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Do you remember that? That was to Eli and to his house, spoken by a prophet from God. Right? You remember that, that that was a prophecy from a man of God, we don't know his name, who went to Eli and told him that this was going to happen. And so you remember Eli? Right? He, he was that old judge, that priest at the beginning of 1 Samuel who had these two very evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And his two sons were priests who were, were having sexual relations with the caretakers of the temple. And they stole the sacrifices from worshipers. And they made the worship of God just this horrible thing for anyone to even want to do. Because you'd bring these sacrifices, they'd take them and sell you something else. And, and then they're just kind of sleeping around with all the servants there, just practicing sexual immorality, stealing from people, mistreating people. Who wants to worship at a place like that? Who wants to worship God? When, when you're, the very people that are endowed with these responsibilities of kind of ushering worship of God are doing this to you. So even though Eli knew that what, what his sons were doing, he didn't discipline his sons the way that he should have. He just gave them a little lecture, and then that was it. But something more severe was required there. They, they should have been removed from those priestly positions, not just kind of, bad boy. Right? It's... And because he didn't, God, God brought a prophet to Eli to tell him that Eli's house will die by the sword. Except one guy, he's going to just weep. But everyone else is out. And so that was the prophecy of judgment because Eli didn't fulfill his role as a priest. And he allowed his sons who were also priests to abuse their position to misrepresent God to the people. 
So Eli thought more of his sons than he did of God's honor. And so this is what is coming to pass in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Now some of you might be struggling as to how can God allow such a horrendous act to happen to these people? That I mean, that was 40, 50 years ago. It wasn't the same people. How can God do that? I mean, they're not even of the same generation of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. So how can that be? Now, I don't disagree with you that this is a horrendous act. I don't disagree with that. And you won't get a debate from me that this is absolutely horrendous, wicked, evil. And you won't get the Bible to disagree with you that this act was evil and this act was wrong by Saul. But even though this was a wicked and evil, horrendous act, it was still a significant fulfillment of God's judgment on Eli and his family. And it was still prophecy that was fulfilled. And that doesn't mean that Saul and Doeg are innocent or that they're right in what they did. They're still responsible for those wicked acts. They did commit evil, but they also fulfilled the words spoken to Eli from a man of God 40, 50 years ago. Now, some of us might have a hard time with this. But let's just deal with with our main idea now. The main thing that's going on here is that God's enemies, even in their hostility towards God's people, they're carrying out God's plans even though they're evil. Right? Even in their wickedness, God is sovereign. God is in control. Those people don't have this thing where they can act independently of God and and just do whatever. They're, They're still fulfilling God's prophecy, God's will. And even though they're wicked people doing wicked things, they're still carrying out God's plans. And so Saul wiped out the priests of the Lord, the priests for the most part. They're outside of the corrupt ones like uh, Hophni and Phinehas. Most priests were people who were leading the people in worship, leading the people in intercession, and they were doing a good thing. And here we have Saul killing off the Lord's servant by the sword. Evil. A willful act of slaughter, but it still fulfilled the judgment that was given 40, 50 years earlier. So you see, even God's enemies prove that God's word is true. And some of you may think that, oh man, that's just so Old Testament, right? That's irrelevant. But that's not so, because at the core of the gospel, there's this tension that Peter addressed in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Right? And this happens right after Pentecost where Peter addressed this Jewish audience where he brings the Old Testament and the New Testament together in this verse and where Peter tells us about God's sovereignty while simultaneously telling us about people's responsibility. Right? Here's the verse. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the sovereignty of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You're still responsible. Even though that was God's plan, that Jesus would die for our sins, you still killed him. So the death of Jesus, what allows us to have this new covenant with God, was designed by God before there was a new covenant here. And it was established in the Old Testament. And what we have here is this divine sovereignty of God meeting the responsibility of people. And the truth of all of this is is mysterious. I can't explain it all, but but it's kind of clear. That God is sovereign, but we're still responsible for our actions, just as Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And the Bible tells us that, that God had this definite plan and foreknowledge, right? God is in control. God is sovereign. But that lawless men still crucified and killed Jesus, even though God is sovereign. People's actions, they will be held responsible for those actions. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, right? 
And this is the same thing that's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 22. In that God is sovereign, but the lawless men are responsible for their actions. So the word of God is true. The, the word spoken to Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2 came to pass as God said, but Saul and Doeg are still responsible for their actions even though they fulfilled prophecy. And God is sovereign. He can use these evil people to bring about His prophetic word. So we can see that God's words of judgment, they are true. And that also means that His words of deliverance are true as well. Right? And we can find comfort in the words of God. They are true. And we can depend on God's words to us. And all of it from judgment to deliverance. And even though we have these assurance of God's words, we can also be assured of the hatred from God's enemies. And we can see from history that Antichrist have sought to crush God's people since the beginning of time. And these horrendous people and their acts, they aren't new to the Bible as, as there are many of these Antichrists and, and the records of what they have done throughout history. People who have massacred the Lord's people, like Saul, who wiped out priests, their families, their livestock, their babies. God's people do experience hatred from His enemies. And so you look at the Antichrist Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 who ordered every Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the river. And you look at Balaam and Balak in Numbers chapter 22 where Balak requested Balaam to curse Israel. Or how about Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18 where she killed the prophets of God. And we have Antichrist Athaliah at around 840 B.C. A woman. Because Antichrists aren't just men. And in 2 Kings chapter 11... She tried to wipe out the entire Davidic line except for a baby named Joash who survived. And then you move through history to 480 B.C. and we have Haman in Esther chapter 3 who tried to kill off all the Jews because he hated Mordecai so much and he gets this order from the king that, ah, go ahead, kill him, kill them all. And, he, and then we head to Daniel chapter 8 where Antiochus Epiphanes, who was prophesied of back then, came, comes around the scene about 168-165 B.C., and he sought to eliminate the Jews and everything that was Jewish. He wanted to put an end to their religion. He forbid them from sacrificing to God in the temple. Instead, he, he brings in a pagan god to put in the temple, Zeus, and, and he didn't allow any type of religious observances, no festivals, no, no feasts, no Sabbath, no nothing. He didn't allow them to practice circumcision, and if they did, they were sentenced to death. He burned their scrolls, their scriptures, their writings. He didn't just want to get rid of the Jews. He wanted to get rid of anything Jewish. And if you're interested in reading about him, you can read about him in the Apocrypha and 1 Maccabees. And we have Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. And so over and over again, we have these Antichrists. And they're all over the Bible. But they're also throughout history. They're not just in the Bible. And Saul is part of this tradition right before Jezebel in the chronology. But like all the other occurrences, there is a remnant that remains. Someone makes it out. Someone survives. And even though God's people experience this hatred from their enemies, God doesn't let His church die completely. There's always a remnant. And the Scriptures tell us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? Don't, don't be shocked. 
Don't be, don't be shocked to come face to face with these antichrists because remember, God always leaves a remnant of His church. His church will not be stopped. You personally might face a trial. You might even face death. But the overall kingdom, it will move on. Verse 20, back in 1 Samuel. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David, the remnant. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. God leaving a remnant. It's, it's, it's just a fascinating pattern, isn't it? Because if you look back at all those biblical references I just gave you, there's always a remnant from those places, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I want to talk now about the contrast between David and Saul. See, we have these two contrasting things going on here. We have the interaction between Saul and Ahimelech, and we have the interaction between David and Abiathar. Saul the king accused Ahimelech, the priest, he accused him of treason. And he sentenced him to death, even though what Ahimelech did was innocent based off of the information he was operating from. And then we have David, the anointed king from God, dealing with the only priestly survivor, Abiathar, and in this contrasting way. So Abiathar brought David information about what happened at Nob, told him about the massacre that happened there. David confessed that he, he endangered the priest and he assured Abiathar that he would protect him. So now look at the final words in each of those cases to bring to light this contrast. So for Saul, it's found in verse 16. You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then you look at David in verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Now why is this of any significance? Why is the massacre of priests and having someone survive, namely Abiathar, live to tell the story? Why is that important? Well, this is actually a really big deal because we're going to take a look at how God works. Right? How God always leaves this remnant in the middle of His people's suffering. So we mentioned Pharaoh in, in Exodus 1, how he sought to throw all the baby boys in the river. But then there was this infant boy that makes it out alive in Exodus 2. Right? Moses. Right? The baby in the basket that, that, that happened to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. The one who rescued him and, and, and then he set his people free from slavery. And then in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, the prophet Elijah thinks he's the only one left. Right? But, but then God spared 7,000 who did not bow to Baal. Right? So, so you see that God kept this remnant of the faithful alive just like he does now. God will build his church. In 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 2 through 3, Jehoshaphat rescued Joash so that Davidic line would continue where Jesus the Messiah is going to come from. God's word is true. His church, His kingdom is going to move on even though all these antichrists are wiping people out. He leaves a remnant. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 13-15, through 15, Herod kills all the baby boys under two years old in Bethlehem. Who escaped? Jesus. 
Right? Jesus, he escaped to Egypt with his parents, Mary and Joseph, and because of God's remnant, now we're forgiven of our sins through Jesus. So God leaves a remnant of his church, of his people, even through massacres, even through slaughter. And God's plans will come to fruition even though things look otherwise. And God's people may be massacred, but they will never be completely wiped out, eliminated. God preserves his people. He leaves a remnant. He, he, he allows suffering. But there will not be the extinction of his people or the extinction of the church, no matter what those antichrists do. God's plans will come to fruition. And we know that not all of them make it out alive. Unfortunately, there, there have been millions of people who have been killed who stand for Jesus. Not everyone is an Abiathar. But, but God will preserve a remnant. God will always leave a remnant, whether it's Moses, Abiathar, Joash, Jesus. And sure, sure, we might face different antichrists like Saul, but God will always leave something behind. And we're not guaranteed to live through the suffering that, that we face for, for our faith, but God's church will always move forward. And so we see that the kingdom of God lives on even though we're not assured of, of how long we're going to live. That, that Jesus' church will never face extinction. And so there's some affirmation there, isn't there? That, that the victory belongs to God. That the victory is the Lord's. That we can be confident in God no, no matter what antichrist we face. That He will stand true. So John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 5, The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Why can John tell us that? Because the darkness simply can't overpower light. You bring light in there, it's, it's light. It's not dark anymore, right? So we know that God wins. Victory belongs to the Lord. And, and God's people have victory in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their tribulations, their turmoil. And so, you remember the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? Right, the burning bush is often used as the symbol of Israel. It's often used as a symbol of the church. Why? Because even though the bush was burning, it was never consumed completely by the fire. Right? That, that's the image we get of Israel during the time where, when they were in Egypt, during the Exodus. That they were going through suffering, they were going through the fire, all this turmoil, affliction, but they were never consumed by it. And just like the Lord's church, the bush burns, but there are no ashes. We can be perseverant because the victory is the Lord's. And He will preserve His followers even though it might just be one. But He'll preserve it. See, He won't let it die. His kingdom's going to move forward. Jesus' second coming is happening. Nothing can be done to stop that. And we might go through fire but we will never be consumed by it. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your encouragement that even though this horrendous thing happened, that it was also proof not only that Your Word is true, that what You prophesy in judgment and what You prophesy in deliverance, they're both equally true, but that, Lord, there's a hope because You never extinguish what You've had planned all along. We thank you that there was always a remnant left that Jesus came through that Davidic line and, and you preserved all those people so that it fell right in line in, in, in prophecy. And Lord, we also know that the second coming of Jesus is also true. 
that you will preserve the church until that day. So, Lord, we pray for anyone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. Pray, Lord, that this, uh, your scriptures kind of spoke to them in their heart about just how true your word is and how, how prophecy is fulfilled throughout history. Things that aren't even necessarily biblical, but they're proven through history, history books that are accounts of what has happened in the Bible, kind of backing up with archaeology and all else, backing up what the Bible is sharing with us. So I ask, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts and their minds. And if you don't know Jesus um, as your Lord and Savior, you can pray this prayer with me. God, thank you for preserving the messianic line that offers me salvation through Jesus. I pray, Lord, that even though right now I'm praying in faith and I don't know every single detail about salvation, but I do believe in faith that you died for my sins and that I want a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.